Uh, we're going to continue our series this morning um, on the Minor Prophets. It's been a good series. We've, every, every Sunday we've picked a different book and we've kind of looked at the heart of God and what he has to say to his people. And today we're going to look at Amos. And I hope you've had an opportunity to read through Amos in preparation. I want to tell you a story as I start. When I, uh, when I was a young youth pastor, we set up, I was a young youth pastor in Calgary a while ago. And uh, we set up a, a missions program where we, with our youth where we encourage them to serve locally in mission and then nationally we had a little uh, Canadian missions trip that we did and and if they proved themselves and they were students that really showed that they had a heart for God and a heart for missions we would do an international trip and so for three years in a row we did an international trip to Mexico we flew down to San Diego we rented a van and we drove down into the Baja and I had a connection with with a fantastic orphanage in the Baja and it was it was um, three trips that were amazing I saw uh, incredible things happen in the life of students, and uh, it was a great ministry to be part of because you could just you could hang out with with um, with orphans, and there was lots of work projects to be done around there uh, in the orphanage, and it, w- it was meaningful stuff. Every evening we would go and we'd do an outreach into the local outreach, uh, reaching out to people that are um, outside of the orphanage. And so there was one there's one specific place that that really impacted me, and uh, and kind of edged itself in my mind and my heart. I want to tell you about it. Um, We drove about 20 minutes outside of the city. We're kind of in rural Baja, uh, Mexico. It's beautiful. There's lots of farmland, but we went went to uh, a labor camp. And so this was a camp where people that were working in the strawberry fields, they lived. And so the farm owner would actually set up a a residence on his land and the locals would, well not the locals, but the people working in the farms would live there. And it's kind of what you would expect. It's pretty um, pretty bland, uh, concrete concrete rooms, um, just pretty simple living conditions, um, dirt dirt and sand for the roads and uh, just not, not a great place to live. So we went in there and there was piles and piles of kids. Like there, this is a pretty large residence. And so we went in there and we just loved on the kids and we showed them that we cared about them and we played with them. And I quickly realized there's, there's not a lot of adults around. It was just full of children. So I started asking questions and I started getting answers that I really didn't like hearing. Both the parents were working in the field and we were there in the evening. And so they were working like 14, 15 hour days uh, picking strawberries, working in the fields and leaving their kids to fend for themselves. And they'd come home to some pretty rough conditions that they were living in. Uh, these were people that were actually shipped up from the southern Mexico. So they were kind of, they were kind of immigrants and they were, they're from, from Oaxaca and they'd be shipped up to the Baja to work for rich landowners. I found out how much they got paid and it was so minimal. It, 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 it was hard for me to comprehend how hard these people worked and how little they got paid. They could barely feed their families. And they, they lived in, in these labor camps. And because they're far away from a city, from a local grocery store, uh, the landowner actually built a grocery store so these people uh, could go get their groceries because they didn't have vehicles or anything like that. So you'd think this is a good thing. But in the grocery store, the food was just crazy marked up. They could barely afford to feed their families because the food was incredibly expensive. But there was two things that was really cheap in the grocery store. It was alcohol and drugs. And what the, what the landowners were trying to do is get, is get these workers down on life so that they would turn to alcohol and drugs and then they'd really be trapped. And they would just be working so that they could uh, feed their addictions. And lots of these people looking for hope, coming up to a richer part of Mexico, uh, looking for a better life for their kids would get sucked into this cycle 
uh, all created by rich landowners. And I started asking these questions. I started seeing the injustice, and I could not believe it. And it really started making me think as a Western consumer how I support industries like this without even knowing it. You know, uh, I think twice now when I buy Mexican strawberries. Now, now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that all Mexican strawberries are bad and we need to boycott them. But I started, I started recognizing how the things that I buy actually support systems, and I started looking into the systems that are supporting. So even the clothes that I buy, maybe there's a reason they're so cheap. Where were they made and what kind of factors were they made in? And, and, and Laura and I really started the conversation about how do we support locally so that we're supporting people who are doing things ethically and, and we're not actually hurting um, the systems that, that cause this kind of poverty. And so these are the things that, that I started thinking about a long time ago when I started being faced with the injustice that I saw there in Mexico. Uh, we are working through the minor prophets, and today we're going to look at Amos. And if you've read Amos, you will quickly pick up in Amos that he talks a lot about social justice. It really is the theme. And as we look at this book, we're going to see, as we've seen with all the other prophets that we've studied, that what, what really matters to God? We see this especially in the minor prophets. What is so important to God and what does he want from his people? What is he calling his people to do and to look like to the world around them? And justice is really big on his radar. We see this in all the prophets, but we really, really see it in Amos. And so today the message is about social justice as we see it in Amos. Uh, before we get into it, uh, let me just lay some, some groundwork for social justice in the scriptures because it, is, it really is a prevalent theme. Before, before I do that, I just want to pray. I, I, have felt, I have felt the weight of this message all week um, as I've studied and looked into it, as I looked at the, the statistics. Uh, this is such a huge topic and it's overwhelming to try to cover it uh, in 30 minutes. But I'm going to do my best and I want to just pray that our hearts are open and sensitive because I think God has some things that he wants to tell us this morning. So, uh, God, I just pray that you'd speak through me and I pray that you'd speak through your word. That your word would come alive to us this morning and that we would really um, get a sense of what your heart is, Lord. And what matters so deeply to you. God, we want to be a people that look more and more like you. Form us in Christ-likeness, I pray. And help us to understand what that means and what that looks like in our life, I pray. In Jesus' name. So, um, Amos isn't the first place we, we see social justice. The people should have known better. Uh, we're going to look at, at Exodus here. So, immediately God, as he's forming his people, talks a lot about what, I want them, what he wants them to look like. So, Exodus chapter 22, the, the Israelites are... are, are um, are out of Egypt and they've done their 40 years and, and, uh, and God is laying down on the tablets. He's saying, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to look like. These are the kind of people I want you to be. Exodus 22, it says this, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you are foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, they will cry out to me and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Pretty strong words. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is only covering your is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So immediately we see here that God has a heart for the people who are in the margins, the widows, the poor 
the foreigners, and he gets really worked up when they're taken advantage of. He hates this stuff, and you can see the strong language here. Let's go to Leviticus. We don't read much in Leviticus, but there's some good stuff in there. Again, uh, laws and precepts that God is laying down for his people to say, this is what I want you to look like and what I want you to value. He says this, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. So foreigners, best understood in this context, is, uh, is immigrant. Somebody from a different culture, from a different country, probably a different language. And God is saying, I care about those people and I want you to treat them the same way you treat yourselves. Treat them as equals. Leviticus, Leviticus 19. This is a really interesting one. This is actually speaking to landowners here. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. It's interesting. He even says to landowners, don't, don't, don't clear everything out. I want you to leave some leftovers because I care about the poor and I want them to be able to come in and reap a harvest as well. And then in Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy really is a book that kind of sums up what God wants his people to look like. He says this about himself. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So uh, in these early books of the Bible, God is God's shaping his people and he's saying, this is what I want you to look like and this is the kind of heart that I want you to have. Um, he says as a nation, you are supposed to be ones that value and love people that are usually at the bottom rung of society. Widows, poor, foreigners, orphans. I want you to really care about them. I want you to have a heart for them. We can say this, whenever human beings are mistreated, God is offended. God is offended at human suffering and human oppression. So we've journeyed through the minor prophets this summer. We've seen how far Israel and Judah, who were God's people, God's holy nation, how far they had fallen away from what they were supposed to be and the kinds of people that God has called them to be. And so throughout the Minor Prophets, there's a lot of language about judgment. And God is saying, judgment is coming on you because you have failed to be the people I've called you to be. Repent and turn around and become the people I want you to be. Otherwise, exile is, exile is imminent. Amos is one of the earliest prophets in the Minor Prophets here. His message is to northern, is, is to northern Israel. If you remember your history, there's, there, at this time in history, there's uh, two nations. There's northern Israel to the north, and then there's Judah to the south. And Amos is speaking to northern Israel. Um, and as you read through it, there's a pretty clear uh, message of coming disaster for northern Israel. So the context in Amos is this. It was written in 760 to 750 BC under King Jeroboam. Uh, if you know your history under King Jeroboam, this is actually one of the most prosperous times for northern Israel. The surrounding nations around them were kind of, uh, had some internal strife and so they weren't expanding. And so Israel had a chance to have some peace and they actually expanded their own borders and they were starting to get wealthy and things were going really well for northern Israel at this time. And so message of doom and gloom was not something that they expected um, they had a false sense of security and an idea that God had chosen to bless them because they were doing everything right. We see that there was very much an upper class and they were very wealthy at this time, but there was still a lot of poverty and a lot of oppression. And the destruction of northern, northern Israel was actually only decades away, but no one saw it coming because things were very prosperous at the time. So chapters 1 and 2 in Amos starts out with words of judgment. Um, and God, God is judging seven nations around Israel. 
And it's really interesting as you look at the map, it actually does a circular thing. It starts with the north and then the east and the west and kind of circles around northern Israel. And God is judging each of these nations. And, it, and the seventh judgment is actually on Judah, the south. So the whole time you can imagine as Amos is preaching this, the people of northern Israel are going, yes, judge those people. They're very bad. God is against you. But then the eighth judgment comes. And then Amos turns his attention to northern Israel. And this is where we're going to pick it up. Um, and it is, compared to the other nations around them, northern Israel looks really, really bad. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 6. And here's God's specific judgment on Israel. This is what the Lord says. For, the three, for, the three sin, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. So we see that there's human slavery issues going on here. They are actually selling people at very small cost, the cost of a sandal, and they are selling people into slavery. So northern Israel is trapped up in human slavery stuff. The poor get poorer, and justice is not available to them. It gets worse. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Pretty graphic stuff. It's more than likely what they're referring to here is a slave girl that's being sexually abused by father and son. This is happening in God's holy nation. And God is just ripped up about this. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. You remember what we read in, in Exodus, that a poor man can give, a, give their cloak as a pledge to a rich person, but the rich person is supposed to give that cloak back in the evening because it's the only garment that the poor person would have. And what God is saying here is that the rich person has taken this coat and is actually using it as a mattress to sleep at night. So he hasn't given it back. So leaving the poor person without a cloak. And of all the places where this person is laying down to sleep on this cloak, it is in the house of God. It's in the altar after they've drank in wine. Uh, uh, drink, uh, drank wine taken as fines. And so God is painting a very bleak picture of how far northern Israel has fallen. They've fallen so, so far. As you read through Amos, you really have to grapple with judgment language. I'd say Amos, maybe more than any of the other minor prophets, is very graphic in its judgment. But we have to understand how oppressive far Israel had fallen. And that, would, that will make the judgment language uh, make a lot more sense for us. Chapter 3. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought out of Egypt. You only have I chosen. Of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your sins. This is a really key verse in understanding why God is so frustrated with the Israelites. And we really need to read Amos and actually all of the minor prophets in this light. Uh, I've talked about this a, a fair bit already, but none of the other nations were chosen. Israel was chosen to be the nation that represented God to all the other nations around them. They were chosen. God chose them to say, I want you to represent me. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. And, and as you live and as you act and as you worship, other people are supposed to be drawn to me because of you. And God says, you actually look worse than the nations around me. I chose you only and yet you look worse than everybody else. And this is, this is fundamentally why there's so much judgment and, and what the real issue in Israel is. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. And say to your husbands, bring us some more drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you'll be taken away with hooks. The last of you with fish hooks. It's like the ultimate insult. 
right? You cows of Bashan. He's looking at uh, rich women and saying, you are fat cows. In Bashan, that's a, a fertile valley where they raise cows and fatten them up. How did, how did these women get so wealthy and so fat? They oppressed the poor. And God is just sick about it. How did they get there? And then this whole fish hook business, God's saying, when, when, uh, when Assyria took over nations and exiled them back to their, to their nation, they put fish hooks in their lips, connected them to a chain, and marched them back to Assyria. And God's saying to Israel, this is going to happen to you because of the way that you are treating the poor and the way that you are treating the oppressed. It's coming. Very graphic. Chapter 5. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the courts and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on the, their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in their courts. God cares about justice. God cares about the court system and the court system dealing fairly with people. And when it's not done fairly, it, it breaks his heart because this is God's heart, a heart for the poor and a heart for justice. He hates, um, he hates the unfairness, unfair taxes, bribes, courts that favor the rich and oppress the poor. This is really against what God is about. The interesting thing with the Israelites and, and with, the, with the Judas to the south is that um, despite how they were living, they continued to be religious. They continued to go through the motions of, uh, of rituals and religion. So uh, chapter 5, verse 21. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will listen to the music of your harps. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. So the people, they still gathered to worship. They still did festivals. They even sang. They did their sacrifices. And yet it meant absolutely nothing because of how they were living, how they were treating the foreigners, how they were treating the poor, how they were treating the oppressed. And God says, I want absolutely nothing to do with your empty religion. It means nothing. It carries absolutely no weight. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. You see, caring for the poor and the oppressed is not something that, just, that Jesus invented. Jesus comes on the scene and he stands in line with the biblical witness of a God, representing a God that deeply cares about social injustice and cares about the poor and cares about the oppressed. In Luke 4, Jesus stands up there and he says, this is my mission. And he declared that his mission was to proclaim good news to the poor, to cure the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. And who did Jesus hang out with? He hung out with the sick. He hung out, he lived in the more margins of society where few of the religious people would go. He cared about the poor and the widows and the orphans. So I could, I, I could show you a lot more in Amos, but I think you get the picture of, of why God is so angry and how far they had fallen. I've given you a bit of a, of, of a snapshot there. And you might be thinking, well, I'm glad we don't live in a world like that anymore. I'm glad that uh, that was then and this is now and things, justice is in the courts and human slavery is a thing of the past. Um, 
If you're thinking that, I'm sorry to say that you're wrong, that this stuff is still happening. It's still prevalent. There are more human slaves today than there ever have been in the history of the world. This is happening. Um, it's even happening in our country, but it's happening in a lot of other countries as well. So I want to give you some modern day statistics that you probably didn't know about. Um, just because I think it's important that we are aware. So I think I got them up. There. Oh, that's pretty small. But uh, there's an estimated 20 to 30 million slaves across the world today. 20 to million slaves today. 90% of women and children who end up as sex slaves were victims of childhood sexual abuse before they were, were recruited. Uh, you are in greater risk of being hit by a bolt of lightning than you are of going to jail if you enslave a person in South Asia. And there's so much corruption and oppression in South Asia and the courts just aren't doing a whole lot about it. An estimated number of 800,000 people are legally trafficked across international borders every year. There are 161 countries affected by human trafficking. The total yearly profit gained from human trafficking is a staggering $32 billion a year. Majority of modern slavery victims are between the ages of 18 and 24 years old. 1.2 million children are enslaved through forced labor and exploited in the sexual industry every year. In 1850, the cost of a slave, if converted in today's dollar value, would be $40,000. The cost of a modern slave is $90 today. In terms of profit, human trafficking is ranked as the third largest international crime industry, just behind drugs and arms trafficking. 78% of modern-day slaves are in the labor industry, while 22% are, are in the sex industry. 55% of modern-day slaves are women and children. 45% are men and boys. 26% of them are children under 18 years old. These are today's statistics of the oppression and the slavery that, that we face in our world. I want to be really cautious as I share these stats. Um, there, there's a very real temptation to feel utterly overwhelmed and kind of stick our heads in the sand and just go, the, the issue is so huge that there's, we can't possibly do anything about it. But the reality is, is that there is hope and that there is good news. And Christians are making a real dent in the social injustice that's happening around the world. And it's something that we can be pride of, proud of. The church is really waking up to the problems and it is seriously addressing it. Uh, I get to do lots of missions, um, and I get to see so many Christians who are genuinely addressing these issues of oppression and poverty. Everywhere I go, I'm seeing Christians who are, who are tackling these issues. I, you've heard me talk about these things, so I won't take too much time. But in India, the churches that we plant there, immediately they set up a widow's fund where they can help widows, they can help the poor. They help, they help people uh, who are in poverty get jobs so that they can break the cycles of poverty. In India, orphanages are run primarily by Christians, and Christians have a great reputation in India, in India because they are the ones considered to be the people who really do take care of the poor. Christians run Christian schools, private schools, and many, many uh, Hindu and Muslim Indians are sending their kids to the Christian schools because of the reputation that Christians have in India for people that care about the poor and are doing something about the oppressed. In Ukraine, I was there a couple of years ago, and uh, we, worked with, um, we worked with women that grew up in a state-run orphanage. And so by the time they were 18, they had no skills, they had no self-worth, it was not a very good situation they grew up in. And so we have a ministry there where we provide job training and, uh, and give them uh, good work, 
and then, that, and then we provide them with good Christian community and we see their self-esteem growing and we see their life uh, actually having hope. Um, it's a beautiful thing. In Guatemala, um, I could talk a lot about Guatemala and I have here. Um, in Guatemala, we help provide, we are connected to a ministry where we provide scholarships to students. After grade six, school's not free and so every poor family in Guatemala can't send their kids to school. Most of the poor families in Guatemala are Mayan. They are, they are weighed under the oppression of racism there. And so we provide scholarships for Mayan students so they get to continue to go to school and we provide leadership training for them and Christian discipleship. And it's working. And we're actually seeing kids, students rise above the oppression of poverty and racism and do something with their life. And now they are paying back. Students that have gone through the program now for six, seven years have been highly educated, speak great English, who are working in American jobs and sending money back and, and helping their own communities and sponsoring students from their Mayan communities to get uh, ongoing scholarships. It's a beautiful thing, and it is Christians compelled by the love of God, understanding that social injustice really matters. It is Christians that are addressing the issues around the world, and it's something that we can be proud of. Um, and historically, it is Christians who, who address the real needs in the world. Um, and they are making a real difference. I want to show a video here. I, don't, I want to introduce you to a ministry. Probably you've heard of it before. It's called International Justice Ministry, IJM. And they are fa fantastic. And it's a three-minute just kind of intro video about what they are doing to fight injustice around the world. So we're going to play that here. This is the target establishment. First suspect, kill for our victims. And remember, if there's a hazard or dangerous situation, move yourself to a position of comfort. We're running all over to the police. We saw about 1,200 little kids and found out that they were in fact trafficked and they were in fact slaves. These little kids were on this boat. They are not fed. They are abused beyond imagination. We got to touch you up. This is the girl. Whenever something like this comes, I imagine in my mind that girl is found. We have operations all over the world, rescuing people from slavery. Because today there are criminals who abuse children, sell girls. How old is she? 12. 12? How much? 30? Yeah, yeah, maybe. And force families into slavery. Criminals prey on the easiest target, the world's poor, because they expect no one to defend them. But today, there are thousands of people gathering to seek justice for those in slavery. We are a group of lawyers, counselors, activists, and supporters. We are called International Justice Mission. Together, we form the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world.
But slavery won't come to an end until criminals know they can't get away with it. So we partner with local police to arrest and prosecute criminals. This sends a message to slave owners. We will not go away. We stay with the survivors until they are healed, until they are free. Natulungan po ako ng IJM sa pamamigitan po na sa case ko, sa pagtulong po nila na ma-overcome ko po yung, yung fear. Each year, we rescue thousands of slaves and protect millions around the world. We are transforming how justice systems protect their citizens. To those who are still enslaved, we promise to find you. We will get you home to your families so you can have the freedom you deserve. So I, I show that video to you uh, this morning to be encouraged. The largest anti-slavery organization in the world is run by Christians. Inspired by the love of God. Inspired by a God that calls us to care about injustice and, and oppression. And uh, I, just, I love what IGM does. And, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. What do we do? What is, uh, what, what is our response here this morning? I think... I think I'd break it down into two. There would be a, uh, a local response and a global response. I, I think I would sum it up, our local response is that our eyes are opened. That we would open our eyes and our hearts to the injustice and oppression that's happening around us in our own neighborhoods, in our schools, in our own culture. To ask ourselves the questions, who are the oppressed around us and how can we help them? Who's poor and suffering and could use some help? Who's lonely and could be invited into my home? Who's the immigrant struggling to try to figure out what it means to live in Canada? How can I help them? Who are the foreigners? How can we reach out to them? Who's the widow? Who's the orphan? How can we help? Are our eyes open to see, to look for the people in the margins, even our, in our own backyards? Our eyes open. Yeah. To do something. So I think there's a local response. Uh, I'm excited about the event two weeks from now because I think we're going to have a lot of people come through our doors uh, from our community. And some of those people from our community are going to really need help. And uh, we're, we as a church are going to have an opportunity to care for them and to get to know them. And, uh, and I hope that we can be there to engage and to pray and, and to look for opportunities to help people. What has God given you? What's the gifts he's given you? What has he called you to do in your own life? Uh, justice in our own community. I had a good friend back in Nelson. He's a dentist. He does really well. On the evenings and weekends, he's opened up a low-income clinic where he can help people that can't afford dental because he says, I've been given this gift and I know that people can't afford it. So he helps people in the margins with that. I've got construction friends, guys who get together once a month and they go and they fix things up for single moms or for the elderly that can't do it themselves. Just easy, simple stuff, but what, what has God 
given you as a gift? And how can you help somebody with that? I know of people who are, who are young and they got time on their hands, so they go visit uh, the elderly or the widow, people that are lonely, that just really need a friend or somebody to talk to, or they go into the hospitals and they find people that, 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 uh, that just need to be talked to. I know of people that donate fruit and veggies to the food bank sacrificially because they care about the poor and those that can't afford that kind of produce, right? Um, I could go on and on. People that um, open up their homes to foster kids or do adoptions. Those are ways to combat um, some of the issues, some of, some of the, the poverty and the challenges that are in our world. And so that, that's the local response. And then there's global response. Um, so much of this oppression and injustice is happening outside of Canada. We saw the statistics there, you know, in India and in China and in Pakistan. So uh, globally, supporting ministries like IGM. You know, if you're looking to help ministries that are doing justice work, IGM does phenomenal work. So to support them. Um, Compassion Canada, you know, supporting children. Compassion Canada, is, it, it gets kids into, into schools and gives them education, gives them medical and gives them health care. These are ways that we can help. I've got a friend, she's turning 50, and for her 50th birthday, she's from the Kootenays. Uh, only somebody from the Kootenays would do this. She's biking around Uganda, the whole country. She's going to bike around. I think it's going to take her several months, and she's been training for a couple years, and she's raising money so that she can send kids to school. She's an athlete, and she wants to do something. It's just absolutely amazing. I'm inspired by people like this. Um, if you have an opportunity to go on trips to bless the poor, you know, just to get to know the poor and to see what you can do to help. I'm going to India in March. I've had some youth beg me to take them uh, with me. And so I plan to do that and open, open up uh, to any of you that want to come. We're going to go work in an orphanage and uh, work in some leper colonies. That's going to be happening in spring break in March. Um, there are opportunities to go and to care for the poor and to, and to really combat some of the oppression and the injustice that's happening around the world. So I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, it's been an interesting week for me as I've studied this, the statistics and as I've looked and, and reflected on the oppression and the injustice in the world. It's hard. It, it's hard to watch videos like that. It's hard to look at stats like that and not just feel weighted down by it. And yet, at the other hand, there's this tension because I'm, in, I'm, I'm so encouraged that I follow a God that cares about people. A God that cares about people who are in the margins. Not a God that favors the rich and the powerful, but the God that cares about all of us, including those who are so often neglected. A God that calls us to, to do something and to engage with him in this great mission of healing and reconciling the world and drawing people to himself. So, I, so on one hand, I hurt, and on the other hand, I am inspired. And I hope that uh, prompts me and prompts us to more action. So, there's Amos. And there, there's, a, there's a short sermon on injustice. And this really should be like a one-year series. But it uh, gets our feet wet a little bit. Uh, let's pray. Just acknowledge um, God's heart for the poor and for the injustice. God, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you that you care. That you are present. That you call us to be a people that cares. That you have a heart for the poor, that you have a heart for the widows, that you have a heart for the foreigners, and that you invite us to participate with you in reaching those people and giving them hope. 
So thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. God, we give you praise. We give you honor and glory for the God that you are, for the Father that you are. A God who really does care, who reveals yourself to us through the scriptures, through Jesus. So God, draw us to become more like you, I pray. The things that matter to you, that they would matter to us. And the things that you call us to do, that we would respond and that we would do them, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.